First Peter is a letter that's written by the Apostle Peter many years after Jesus lived on the earth, many years after Jesus was crucified and, and, and raised and ascended back into heaven. And it's a letter of encouragement to Christians, to believers who have been scattered all over due in large part to the persecution by the Roman Empire. And it's a letter giving encouragement and hope to these persecuted Christians that they, they can be, they can live, even in their current condition, they can live with hope. And they needed some hope. The, we can't even begin to understand and comprehend the level of persecution that was against Christians in this day. And even beyond this, the torture of Christians, people who just testified to believing in, in Christ. And they were, they were tortured, and families were arrested and tortured, and, and, and children were killed in front of their parents, and, and, and parents tortured in front of their, their children. We can't even begin to fathom what it was like, because we, we've never seen or experienced anything like it, but it was happening in this day, and so these Christians have been scattered. And now Peter is writing a letter to them in hopes to encourage them. And even though we don't live in a day like they lived, we do live in a world that needs some hope, don't we? News and and social media feeds are are filled with, with fear and worry and fret about all that's going on in the world with the sickness and the coronavirus and the presidential election, and the stock market that is so unstable. People are panicking. People are in fear. And we live in a world that just needs some hope. And so Peter is writing to these people, but the, but the message is, is for us as well. If you spend too much time spending or scrolling social media feeds or watching the news, then you'll quickly be depressed discouraged. By the way, all of these things that people are fretting and worrying about are real. And, and just saying or pretending that they don't exist doesn't make them not exist. They, they, they exist in our culture. They're things that we have to think about. But as Christians, our perspective can be different than the perspective of the rest of the world, of non-believers. And so Peter's encouraging them, and I pray that it'll encourage us as well. So if you would stand just for a, a, a few verses as we read it. The preceding verses, and verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, talk about the greatness of our salvation, how the prophets of old studied it diligently, and how the, even the angels are stooping down and desiring to look into it, the greatness of our salvation, and how, and how we as believers, and having the whole picture ought to even more so be really preoccupied with the greatness of our salvation. And today we're going to look at the effects of that salvation, what the effects of that salvation should be. So 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
Let's pray. God, we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We want to understand it. We want to not just be hearers today, but, but doers of the work. So I pray, Lord, that first of all, that you would help me to speak clearly, to say only what you'd have me to say. I pray that each person that's listening would hear what you'd have them to hear, they would, that you would keep distractions away, that we would be careful, Lord, to keep our minds focused on truth and what you have for us. I pray for those that are discouraged today, those that seem without hope, Lord, that you would give them hope, that they would leave here, Lord, believing that there is something better ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Note the very first word that we read in chapter 1 and verse 13. Wherefore. This is a transitional word. It's transitioning from what we've just learned, what he's just said, to what we ought to do with what we just heard. And so for those of you who have not been studying through First Peter in, in our Sunday school class with us, I want to back up a little bit and let you see what he's referencing when he says, wherefore. Let's back all the way up to verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's that word, hope. Verse number four. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Sometimes, although we rejoice, there are seasons of manifold temptations which cause us to be in great heaviness. These are the people he's writing to. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory the appearing of Jesus Christ. At least the third reference here to the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And then he says, wherefore? Wherefore? Knowing all of this, knowing that you, you are scattered strangers all over because of the persecution, knowing that although you're greatly rejoicing now for a season, you're in great heaviness, knowing that there is a hope, a future hope, knowing that, he says, wherefore? 
In other words, he's saying, in light of everything I've told you, this is what you ought to do with it. First of all, we ought to have a, a prepared mind. Verse 13 again. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this is a phrase which is not very common to us in 2020. But the recipients of the letter would easily understand what he meant when he was talking about girding up the loins. In, in ancient Eastern culture, they would wear these long, flowing robes, which were not very conducive to running or climbing or fighting. And so there was a phrase that's introduced in the, in the first couple of books of the Bible of girding up their loins, and, and they would take these, all this excess cloth that was sort of bagging, uh, a, a bagging around them, and they would, they would sort of scrunch it all together and tuck it inside of their a sash or a, a belt that they would have on. It, in the Old Testament, it was used often when they would go to war, they would gird up their loins. They would get ready to go. In other words, they're preparing themselves for action. It was a preparation that they would do to get ready for something that was coming up. And Peter is telling them to prepare for action. Prepare your mind for what's ahead. Don't let your garments just flow sort of loosely and, and, and carelessly as though you have nothing to live for, as though there's nothing ahead of you, as though the days ahead are going to be just like the present days because they're not. There's something before you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Decide that you're ready mentally for what's ahead of you. Put aside the things that are slowing you down that potentially will trip you up. It's a battle term. The battle is before us, men. Let's gird up our loins. And the mind is a battlefield. So much, so much of our problems begin right here, don't they? In our minds, between our ears. The mind's a battlefield. And if we can win that battle we'll do well with all of the other battles that we'll encounter. You know the things in your own mind that trip you up, the things that would cause you to stumble, the things that go around frequently in your mind, and you don't want them there, but they're always there. And when, when it's time to act, you cannot act because you've got this thing in your mind that's tripping you up. And, and what Peter is saying is, gird up the loins of your mind. Let's get, get that stuff out of here. The writer of Hebrews said that we ought to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Those things that would trip us up, those thoughts, those things in our mind that would keep us from doing what we ought to do, we're to tie them off and, and, and put them aside. We must have a prepared mind. Secondly, we, have a, we see a focused mind in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, and what's he say next? Be sober. That's the second command, be sober. It means to be alert. It means to have full capacity of mind, to be undistracted, to be watchful. It means to be free of mental intoxication, free of anything that would creep into our mind and alter our judgment. It's the opposite of just going through life casually, just allowing life to bring whatever it will. It's to be focused and to be serious. It's intentional living. And the fact that we live in the world that we live in, Jason referenced it in Sunday school this morning, this morning, and the fact that Christ is coming back for us someday soon ought to cause us to be watchful, to be alert, to be sober. Look ahead in a couple of chapters to chapter number 4 of 1 Peter, verse number 7. 
He continues in this theme of Christ returning. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Knowing that Christ is returning, you ought to be sober, serious, watchful. Chapter 5, verse number 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If we're going to recognize the attacks of the enemy, we have to be sober, serious, watchful, alert, making sure that those things that would corrupt our mind, intoxicate our mind, are being kept out. It's interesting that Peter is the one to write so much about this, since it was Peter that the Lord rebuked in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Peter had a hard time being alert, staying awake. But he's learned some things since then. This Peter is not the same Peter that Christ rebuked back in the garden. Now Peter is learning, saying from experience, don't sleep like I slept. Be awake, be alert, watch. A prepared mind, a focused mind, and thirdly, an optimistic mind. Still in verse 13, back in chapter 1, if you turn the page. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end. Hope to the end, there's that word again, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope really is the theme of this letter from Peter. He's writing to people that need hope, and he's writing to give them hope. They're oppressed, they're suffering, and he's trying to encourage them. We've said this before, but hope is more than just a desire. It's not something we want. Hope is an a confidence, an expectation. It's a belief of something that is to come to pass. And that's what he wants to give them. Not just a, I sure hope things get better, but a a confidence that things will get better. And our hope, our confidence, is not that suffering in this life will cease. We would like for it to. Those of you that are dealing with recurring ailments, you would like for them to get better. Those of you that have family that are struggling with spiritual influences or physical pain you would like for that you would like for those things to get better in this life you would like for them too but they may not we don't know so our hope is not that things will get better in this life or that struggles will get better in this life but our hope is for the future grace that is going to be revealed to us in the last day by Jesus Christ that's the whole purpose of this letter Now, we experience grace in this life, to be sure. All of us do. I don't have to convince you. Ephesians 4, 7 says, Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We're all given a measure of grace, all of us. What we have, we do not deserve. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And every one of you, whether you have said it or, or will say it, could say and, and, and can say, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's his grace that led us to salvation. It's his grace that allows us to be in church this morning worshiping when we could be out doing all kinds of pagan things. It's by his grace that we have families and friends and freedom. It's by his grace that we're not burning in hell right now with Satan's demons, where we should be. But we have a hope of a future grace that will far exceed any grace that we experience in this life. 
And that's what he's talking about in 1 Peter. And that's what he's talking about in verse 13 when he says, The hope and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying, you're suffering now for a time. If need be, you have suffering. But look to the future. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready. Be sober. Be serious. And, and keep your eyes forward for the grace that is going to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to understand his grace in that day. If you're saved, when you're standing in heaven, on that day you'll understand the grace of God in a way that you never have understood it on this earth. One day, when we're assembled and we're worshiping around the throne, and there are millions of us standing around and singing praises to Jesus and and worshiping God, and, 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 and we look around at the beauty of heaven and all that entails, the most miraculous and, 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 and breathtaking place that any of us can imagine, one day when you're standing there, you're not going to look at your neighbor and you're not going to say, finally, I'm getting what I deserve. Life kind of got me down all the time. I was sick. People didn't get me, but now this, this, is, this is what I deserve. No. On that day, we're going to understand that anything that I ever have received, it was because of the grace of God. On that day when you stand before the Lord and he, and he says to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter in and under the joy of the Lord, you're not going to say, of course I was good. Of course I was faithful. No, you're going to say, it's all because of the grace of God. You're going to understand clearly on that day that everything that is good in your life and everything that is good that you receive, any crowns that are given to you in heaven are, are not because of your goodness, but they're because of the grace of of God. Peter would agree with the songwriter that we, although we've come through many dangers and toils and snares, it's been grace that's brought us safe this far, and it's grace that will lead us home. There aren't enough sermons on future hope, but the Bible says so much about it, about keeping our perspective on the future, on that day, on the return of Christ. But if we really could get a hold of it, it would change the way we live in this life. We're to be looking for that blessed hope, and it's that hope of the grace that will appear at the revelation of Jesus Christ that produces a holiness in us that he's going to speak about and write about in the next verses. 1 John 3.3 says that every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. When we have the hope of one day standing before Christ, one day standing in his holiness, one day worshiping at his feet, and finally seeing him as he is and being like him, when we have that hope and that assurance and that confidence, it will change the way that we live here on this earth. Any man that has that hope purifies himself. Look at the next verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. What does it mean to be holy? Is holiness going to church? Is holiness reading your Bible? Maybe reading your Bible every day? 
or reading your Bible through in a year, is that holiness? Is holiness being generous? Is, is holiness tithing? The Pharisees did all those things, didn't they? Well, I don't think they read through the Bible in a year because they don't have the Bible that we have. But the Pharisees did all those things, and yet they weren't holy. Christ had all kinds of names for them, but none of them were holy. The command is not to be moral. It's not to be just obedient. It's not to be honest. It's not to be generous, although we should be all of those things. But the command is to be holy, as God is holy. The word means sacred. It means set apart for a purpose, set apart for God. It means to be different. We're not to be like the world because our Lord was not like the world. And our our Lord is not like the Lord. He is different. And we're going to see four aspects of our holiness in these verses that I think will encourage you. First of all, we have a nature of holiness. Now understand that 1 Peter is written to believers. What we just read was a message to believers living in this first century. And so as we read it, we, as if we're believers in Christ, if we are born-again Christians, followers of Christ, then we can read it as words for us. But if you have never been saved, if you've never been born again, then what, what we're seeing here about this hope is not, is not for you. These commands are not for you. Now, my prayer is that today that the, the Holy Spirit of God will begin convicting you and showing you your need for salvation, and that today will be the day of salvation for you. But, but, but what we're reading here, this nature of holiness, is to Christians. Look in verse 14 again. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts. We are holy because we have a Father who is holy. We're His children, and as His children, we've taken on His nature. Children inherit the nature of their parents. God is holy, and therefore his children who have his nature ought also to live holy lives. In First Peter, uh, or Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, it says that we are partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of God's divine nature. And you may not feel it, but you're, if you're a child of God, born into his family, then you also have the nature, the divine nature is yours. In many ways, our nature determines our actions and our attitudes and our appetites. A dog and a cat act very differently because they have different natures. Many children bear in their faces the resemblance of their, of their parents. They have that nature. It's not uncommon for me, and, and probably you would say the same thing, to come across someone, and you've never seen them before, a child, and you look at their face and you say, is that so-and-so's son, or is that so-and-so's daughter? Because they bury the mark. They bury the resemblance. They have the nature. We, we naturally take on traits of our parents, don't we? We were previously children of Satan, and we, and we had his marks on us, his nature of unholiness and impurity. But at salvation, we're born into a new family with a new father, and we're given a new nature, and that nature is one of holiness. And wouldn't it be great if people who didn't even know you would always know who your father was because of the holiness, the nature of holiness that they see in you? 
That somebody could see you from a distance, never met you, and say, I can see him. Because, because I'm watching how he lives, I'm watching how she acts at work, there's something different. There's something sacred. There's something set apart in the way he lives. He's not like everybody else. He's different. That's what holiness is. We have a nature of holiness if we're born again. Number two, we have a history of unholiness. Still in verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. The phrase former lust implies impurity and unholy desires. That's the way that we lived previously in our own life, prior to coming to Christ. Prior to putting on Christ's nature, we lived that way. Ephesians 2, chapter 2 says it like this. Wherein, in time past... Paul is writing to Christians. In time past, he said, you walked according to the course of this world, the world you're living in, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That was the previous. That was the old us. That was the old life. We had a different father. We had a different nature. We had a history of unholiness. They had been children of, of disobedience, but now he says as obedient children, fashioning yourselves not according to the former lusts in your ignorance. As saved people, he's telling them, don't look back to your old life. Don't, don't determine how you're going to live because of how you used to live. You know, there's a tendency when we go through struggles and trials in life to drift back into our former self, who we used to be. And Peter's telling them, you're going through it. Right now, you're in deep heaviness. But don't fashion yourself according to the former lusts when you were ignorant, when you did not understand, when you did not know Christ, when you were not a believer, when you did not have this new nature. Instead, be like Christ. Number three, we have an example of holiness. Verse 15, As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. All of us know good people. Somebody that we would say maybe to a child, watch him, try to be like her, a a good example, maybe a, a role model. But there's no example of holiness like that of him who has called us to be holy. He is holy. He is set apart. He is holy. He's so holy that the angels, Revelation tells us, are standing around the throne. And for all eternity, without ceasing, they cease not night and day to say these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. (laughs) The whole earth is full of his glory. Over and over again, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. For all eternity, when you stand around the throne of God, that's what you're hearing. It's been happening. It's still happening. And then one day when we go to heaven, we'll hear it for ourselves. And yet, it's never enough. Because he's worthy. He is holy. And we have an example of perfect and complete holiness right here in his word. 
Because he is the word. And we'll never exhaust it. Do you want to be holy? Then study the Holy One. Study the pages of this word. Meditate on the words of Scripture which magnify the holiness of God. Study the life of Christ who is the picture of Christ. He is, the, he is all the fullness. Jesus Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so when we study the life of Christ, we are studying God. We are studying God and His holiness. If you want to be holy, study holiness. Meditate on His holiness. And if we make His holiness the focus of our worship, it will lead us into more holiness as well. The more you're around a person, the more you begin to take on their characteristics. The more you're with somebody, the more you become like them, for better or for worse. (laughs) The more time we spend with our Lord in prayer and study and meditation, the more we will be like him. Without even trying, you will be more like him because of the time that you're spending with him. So we have an example of holiness. And fourthly, we have an all-encompassing command for holiness in verse 15. An all-encompassing command for holiness. But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. This isn't just a word given by Peter. It's a command given by God. Peter was referencing a command given on three different occasions in the book of Leviticus, where God told the Israelites to be holy. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so Peter is reminding these first century believers that the command was not just for the Israelites, but it was for them as well. And the command is for us this morning. It is written, be ye holy. That statement, it is written, carries a lot of authority, doesn't it? It was that statement that Jesus used in the wilderness with Satan. It is written. The scripture saith. So we have this command that's given by the highest authority to be holy. And it's an all-encompassing command. Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. This means that holiness is to be a part of every area of life. No exceptions. We cannot have a a God quadrant and a family quadrant and a work quadrant and a personal quadrant. We cannot have, this is my holy life, this is my other side. No, no. We're to be holy in all manner of conversation. In every area of life, we are to be holy. It's all-encompassing. In our speech, we're to be holy. In the things that we allow into our ears, into our mind, holiness. In the thoughts, the things that we think, we're to be holy. In our attitudes, we're to be holy. In our relationships, we're to be holy. Every area of life, in all manner of conversation, whether at home, or at work, or at school, or at church, holiness is to characterize everything we do. Even down to the most ordinary activities. 
I like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that we do is to be holy because God is holy. Because we have his nature. He is our father. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the nature of God who is holy. You have an example of holiness. And all of us have a past. All of us have a past of unholiness. But what Peter is encouraging them to do is don't drift back to the old you, but rather keep your eyes forward on the future and keep your eyes upward on the one who is holy. God's been so gracious to us. Your life, your life isn't perfect. I know that. And you certainly know that. There is no perfect life, although sometimes you might look at somebody else's life and say, well, what a perfect life. It must be nice. But there is no perfect life. We all face struggles, trials. They're deeper sometimes. They're deeper one day. They're heavier one day than they are the next. They're ups and downs in life for all of us. And those things may or may not end in this life. But our hope doesn't come from the assurance that that sickness or that problem relationship or that problem child or that problem parent. Our hope does not come with the uh, uh, understanding that that's going to disappear and go away and be fixed in this life. Our hope goes beyond this life to an eternal reward, to an eternal grace that will be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We experience God's graces every day, moment by moment. Whether we think about it or realize it or not, we are experiencing God's graces every moment of every day. But there is a grace that will one day be brought to us that we should look for, that we should long for, And that if we do long for it and we do look to it and we do keep our focus on it, it will change the way we live in this life. It will change the way we look at this life. It's a call to holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It is possible. You may may look in the mirror and say, not me. I know how he could be holy, but not me. There's no way that I could be holy. And I would say, you can be holy because you have a holy nature. Because the God, not because of you. You can't be holy because of, of you. You don't have the capacity to be holy, but the one that lives inside of you. I have a note beside verse 16 in my Bible that says the Holy One lives within us. We can be holy not because of anything on our own, but because of the grace of God and because the Holy One lives within us and lives through us. Amen.